Revelation chapter two, we're gonna look at the church of Thyatira. We'll begin with verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. This is Jesus speaking, keep it in context. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now I say to you and to the rest and Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I also have received from my father, and I will give to him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's start by just setting a bit of backdrop by looking at this church in the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was located about 35 miles southeast of Pergamos, the third city Jesus writes to. Though mostly obscure, the smallest of the seven cities, rather insignificant in many ways, Thyatira was only known for one thing, its dying and indigo trade. One historian wrote that among the ancient ruins of the city, inscriptions have been found relating to the guilds of dyers in the city. Indeed, more guilds are known in Thyatira than any other contemporary city in the Roman province of Asia. Inscriptions mention the various trades, wool workers, linen workers, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths all operating out of this small city known as Thyatira. Now, unlike the other cities that Jesus writes to, you should note that there is no recorded, uh, no record of any type of persecution uh, finding its way onto the doorsteps of this church. Unlike the other cities, Thyatira, there's no religious persecution. And you can imagine that this was probably the result of the lack of an overtly pagan influence within the city itself. No doubt the guilds had various gods that they were dedicated to, that they served, but there was no significant temples, dominant forces like we've seen and the other cities, probably uh, adding to the idea that the church was rather insulated in the first century amongst the persecution, the waves of persecution that would come in and come out. Now, the only other mention we have of Thyatira in scripture is found in Acts chapter 16. The apostle Paul has made his way to Philippi. There's no synagogue where he would start his ministry. And so we're told he goes down by the river and he starts to preach. And a woman is converted, one of the early converts of Paul's ministry in Philippi, a woman by the name of Lydia, who we're told was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. It's the only other mention. 
which might be significant, and it's purely speculation, but some have thought that it might have been Lydia who had started this church here in Thyatira, or she had brought the gospel back to the city and had been influential in the formations of this particular work. We have no other mention of Thyatira. We don't know how the church started. Other than Lydia, it's the only speculation that exists. Now, before we move on, before we kind of get to the historical context, I do want to provide two disclosures up front that I feel is those important for the subject matter we're going to be looking at. First, the period of church history that this letter intends to address, it's still in existence today. Now, we've already seen this kind of play itself out in regards uh, to Sardis, the, the, the persecuted church, Smyrna, the persecuted church. The rest of the letters will also still be in existence today. Uh, not only in this letter will we find Jesus speaking in the present tense as he'll do in the remaining three, but his warning, his application to this church will mention two yet still prophetic events that have not happened. First, the rapture of the church is alluded to within the letter. Secondly, the great tribulation is also mentioned within the letter itself, lending to the idea that this church is still in existence and will continue to be in existence up until the rapture and the great tribulation. The second point of disclosure, though this letter is addressed to the Roman Catholic church, and we're gonna address this in a very raw type of way, it should be pointed out, and I need to say this, that though Jesus will be writing to the Roman Catholic Church as an institution, not every individual Roman Catholic is guilty of the things that Jesus will be addressing. Truth be told, there are many wonderful, Bible-believing, Spirit-filled Christians within the Roman Catholic Church itself. My grandfather happens to be a Catholic. Now it should be mentioned that the letter itself seems to substantiate this idea that though Jesus will be writing to the Roman Catholic Church and will have strong things to say, it isn't to be applied to maybe every Catholic, that there are some within the church um, that are faithful, a remnant, a faithful remnant. If you notice Jesus, he will not only accuse this woman Jezebel of seducing, did you notice it? His servants within the church, but he also promises to lay on the faithful who do not hold this doctrine, no other burden, except that, quote, they hold fast to what he comes. And so though, though we're gonna be addressing the Roman Catholic Church, I just feel like it should be said that this doesn't apply to every individual Roman Catholic because there are great Christians within the church, people I would consider to be brothers and sisters. So let's set the context. Last Sunday, we noted how under Constantine, and more specifically, an edict Constantine issued, known as the Edict of Milan, that the persecuted church immediately, overnight, became the church of privilege. And while the church, represented by Pergamos, the last letter we looked at, enjoyed the protection and the financial support of the state, over time, over the years, the influence of the Christian Roman emperor would slowly transition, not into influence, but instead more power and more control over the direction and the policies of the church. By, three, uh, by 380 AD, this growing flirtation between the church and the state would ultimately lead to an unholy union when Theodosius, 
issued what's known as the Edict of Thessalonica. And it's this edict that, quote, ordered all subjects of the Roman Empire to possess the faith of the bishops of Rome and Alexandria. And this singular act, whereby the church and the state married together, merged together, and everyone was required to now be a Christian, the Catholic Church, which we know is simply the universal church, immediately became the Roman Catholic Church. It was led by the emperor and in whose power was ultimately placed with the bishop of the church in Rome. His name would later kind of manifest itself into being known as the Pope, the pastor of the church of Rome. Now, last Sunday, we also noted how leading into this period of history, the favor of the church by the state had made the church susceptible to institutional corruption, as well as moral and theological compromise. We talked about that in depth last Sunday. Now, in this letter, because these trends of corruption of the institution and the corruption of theology continued unabated that the church in Pergamos didn't heed Jesus's warnings, we now, as we look at this particular church in Thyatira, we'll see how far the church has fallen from her original purpose and commissioned design. Sadly, since the state church was no longer a light unto the world, it's a fact of history that the world itself would plunge into what's known as the dark ages. Now let's start by looking at Jesus's commendation. The things he sees within this church that he commends them for. He says, look at it. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. By and large, the Catholic Church has used her immense power, privilege, and influence to do really good work throughout the world. This church has been faithful to love people, to demonstrate charity, to serve the community. Jesus also mentioned something interesting about their service, love, charity, patience. He says, as for your works... The last, meaning the more recent, are more than the first, the original. You know, it's simply a fact of history that beginning in 380 AD and continuing all the way up until the present age, the Roman Catholic Church has grown in her influence and good works. Today, the Roman Catholic Church invests enormous amounts of money and resources into really good things. Things like schools, orphanages, education and hospitals, not just in America, but all throughout the world and developing countries. As a matter of fact, and you can do some research, it's interesting. The Catholic church is by far and away the largest global charity. Truthfully, the Protestant church could learn a few things. You know, in just the United States alone, the Catholic Church provides the following things. This is just a highlight. They provide food services for 7 million people in America alone. There are 2.6 million students 
enrolled in the 7,142 elementary schools and 1,374 high schools. There are over 720,000 students enrolled in some 230 Catholic colleges and universities. There are 629 Catholic hospitals in America, which represent 12.6% of all of the hospitals in the United States. That means that an astounding one in six medical patients receives healthcare from the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic healthcare systems and facilities are present in all 50 states, providing acute care, hospital services, home health, assisted living, senior housing, and the list could go on and on and on. You know, it's really difficult to say with any type of certainty how much money the Catholic Church spends in charitable, you know, in charity every year. But the economist, working some calculations, some tabulations, estimates that the Catholic Church spends $170 billion annually across the world in good service. Quite a commendation. I know your works, that the most recent are even more than the original. Now, if the letters stop there, they'd be feeling really good, but it doesn't because now we get to its criticism. Jesus says, nevertheless, now that, that's a transitional word, isn't it? Nevertheless, or in spite of all of that. So all of the things we just laid out, all of the context we just established, all of the good things this church is doing, Jesus is saying that in context of all of that, nevertheless, in spite of, I have a few things against you. You allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, though, in mentioning that woman, Jezebel, Jesus was probably actually addressing a woman within the local church there in Thyatira. But because we're not given any other context, in order to fully understand what Jesus is communicating by invoking this name, we not only need to look at the name in regards to the Old Testament scriptures, but we also have to place the name in context to the history of the Catholic Church. For starters, this name, Jezebel. It's an Old Testament reference that implies total villainy. I mean, Jezebel was a villain of the people of God. It would be like Judas or saying Hitler. Names that no one attributes to their own children. Like if, if you're gonna have a daughter and you're looking for a good name, don't go with Jezebel. Not a good one. It means dunghill. You don't wanna use it anyway. So Jezebel, we find her story in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 21, you can read about her on your own. And then we find her death in 2 Kings chapter 9. Now, by invoking the name of this evil woman, Jesus is clearly seeking to illustrate the nature and subsequent type of um, corruption brought about by this particular teaching and what she's doing within the church. Now, Jezebel represents several things that are significant to our understanding. First, she represented an unholy alliance that God forbid. The marriage between Jezebel, 
who was the daughter of a king, the king of Sidon, and the Israeli king Ahab was one of political expediency. This is during the divided kingdom. You have Judah in the south, the 10 tribes up in the north, their own nation known as Israel. So if you're reading through the Old Testament and then things divide, you have mention of Judah and kings of Judah and kings of Israel. The kings of Israel are in the north and they were all wicked. Really bad time of history. Ahab is a bad dude. And so he marries Jezebel, this foreign daughter of a king, for a political alliance. But that act was forbidden by God. God had been very clear as to the dangers of his people intermarrying with pagan, wicked people, the nations around them. God forbid this. You know, it's true that moral standards fall much easier than they rise. I'll give you an easy example. If you're a good Christian boy and you've been raised that sex before marriage is wrong, and you believe in that, and you hold to that, but you end up dating a girl who does not have the same Christian worldview you do, does not have the same Christian ethic, does not have the same belief that sex before marriage is wrong, but you love her. I promise you, it's a lot easier for her to convince you to have sex than it will be for you to convince her to be chaste. As soon as she starts taking clothes off, you're in trouble. If you're standing on a stool, it's a lot harder for you to pull me up than it is for me to push you off. It's the nature of morality. It falls much easier than it rises up. And as a result, God just over and over and over again was like, don't marry with these people. Don't intertwine yourself with these people. Bad company corrupts good morals. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Because trust me, it's easier to go the way of Satan than it is to walk the narrow road of God. So Jezebel represents this unholy alliance that God forbid. But we also see that Jezebel promoted idolatry over the worship of God because of her influence. And she is the ultimate seductress. She seduced King Ahab. As a result, she ended up taking a foothold in the heart of the king, but a foothold in regards to the national identity. She led intentionally the people of God into the worship of a pagan God named Baal. In 1 Corinthians, uh, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter 16, we're told it came to pass that King Ahab took as wife Jezebel and he went and served Baal and worshiped him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. We're told Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. In many ways, Jezebel, and this connects with this letter, she was a self-proclaimed prophetess. She was an apologist for the worship of Baal. In addition to building the high places for pagan worship throughout Israel, according to 1 Kings chapter 18, she actively sought to purge the kingdom 
of the true prophets of God. And everything Jezebel did, she stood and direct tension with and opposition to the true word of God and the true prophet of God, a man by the name of Elijah. In a sense, Jezebel's great sin was placing this false god, Baal, into a position that should have been only reserved for the true God of Israel. You know, it should be pointed out <clears throat> that Baal, Baal was the weather god, the god of weather. As a matter of fact, his name, Baal, literally means Lord or husband. It's fascinating that the, the, the ultimate sin, according to Romans chapter one, Paul would say that those who worship the creator were led into the worship of creation. And we see this taking place within the nation. Instead of worshiping the creator, they're now worshiping nature. They're worshiping the weather. They're worshiping a false God, which gives some context because Elijah, when he came on the scene, what did Elijah do? He cursed the weather. You want to know who's the true God? I'll tell you. And he cursed the weather so that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, showing who was truly powerful, truly in charge. As we'll see, Jezebel, she was guilty of seducing God's wife, the nation of Israel, into committing an adulterous affair with Baal. Sadly, because of the theological perversions that we see within the Catholic Church, it would also be guilty of the same, Jezebel. Jezebel also led God's people into immorality. Now, Jezebel exerted tremendous control over King Ahab, which allowed her to influence the moral direction. So there's an unholy union taking place. That unholy union leads to idolatry, the worship of Baal. And it's now the worship of Baal that leads the people into immoral behavior. We're told in 1 Kings 21 that there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Now, understand, understand that this immoral behavior that was propagated throughout the nation of Israel, it came as a direct result of the worship of Baal and the idolatry of Baal. One historian wrote this, Baal worship was completely indulgent with regard to sexual mysticism on one hand, but overly strict, harsh, and severe on the other with regards to ascetic practices with occasional bouts of human sacrifice along the way. Now, now, now let me sum this up because I think Jesus pointing out Jezebel in addressing this church, it's intentional for a reason. The problem with this church started with an unholy union. This marriage with the state, it was forbidden. It would lead to corruption, the corruption of theology, but it would also lead God's people into an adulterous affair. Idolatry as a result within the Catholic Church is very real. I'll give you an example. The worship of saints. There's no scriptural justification for the worship of saints. We have access to the throne. 
so that we can boldly approach God's grace for one reason and one reason alone. In Hebrews, we're given one mediator and one mediator alone. His name is Jesus. Mary is not a mediator to God. You can pray to Mary, but that's idolatry because she's not God. She's the same as you and I, which is why study her life in scripture and you will find she worshiped Jesus. That she was there at Pentecost. Mary would be disturbed by the reality that people worship to her. It's no good. It's idolatry. In addition, we, they worship to all types of saints. Beyond that, if, if you carry it over, you will also see that the Pope possessed undue, unbiblical, unmitigated power, such as that his word was on par with God's. That he was the vicar, that he spoke for God. Thus his word was the same as scripture. I'm sorry, there's no justification for that. It's idolatry, idolizing the Pope or a priest. Beyond that, study history and you will find all types because of this idolatry of sexual perversion within the church itself. Many of the early popes were perverts. They had extra, they had affairs, which is weird because they weren't supposed to be sleeping with anyone anyway. They're to be celibate. There was all types of perversion taking place within the church because they had replaced God with their own. And it yielded to sexually immoral behavior. Now you can talk about what Jesus is implying or what he's referencing. One scholar I, I, I really trust, really admire, he pointed to the celibacy of the priesthood. Once again, a non-biblical idea. Nowhere does God's workmen be required to not enjoy something God created, sex, a union with a woman. Praise Jesus, hallelujah. Like at no point is it mentioned that to serve God, you can't have sex. And as a result of that policy, and I'm gonna tread lightly, but there has been all kinds of perverse behavior even today within the Roman Catholic Church. A theological position that has led to sexual immorality. You know what else was produced? And notice how the parallels with the worship of Baal are, 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 are incredible. We're also told that as a result of this adulterous affair that yielded sexual immorality, it also emphasized human sacrifice as a way to appease God. The act of abstaining from human pleasure. We find that all over the monastic movements of this day. Even during the day of Martin Luther, when he received this incredible revelation that the just shall live by faith, not just being saved by faith. What was he doing? He was crawling the stairs of St. Peter's Basilica, his knees bleeding, to show God how much he loved him. When Elijah was confronting Jezebel to prove his point, he did, he did something interesting. He decided to show who was the true God he challenged the prophets of Baal to a barbecue. Let's see who can, uh, who can come up with the best barbecue. You build your fire pit, I'll build mine, but the fire has to be provided by God. And what did the, the prophets of Baal do to try to get Baal to provide fire? We're told that they were running around cutting themselves 
to try to appease this particular God. And all Elijah did, dump some water on it. I'd like to think it was some spices. And he prayed, fire. And then he single-handedly kills 450 or so odd priests of Baal. Now that's a prophet, <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's this corruption, this corrosion that's happening. But, but now look, because Jesus drops the hammer. He says, as a result of these things, quote, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. While the substance of what Jesus is saying to this church is a tough pill to swallow, notice how he began. He says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. Now don't overlook the power of those words. Coming, mind you, from a husband whose wife has committed adultery. He says, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to return. Even knowing that she's not going to, Jesus is still patient and he's still so long-suffering with his bride, the church, you and I. But look, there's consequences. Because she refuses to repent, there's consequences of spiritual adultery. Look at him. He says, I will cast her into a sick bed. That doesn't sound good, right? Right off the bat. Literally, a sick bed in the original language was a couch on which the sick were carried, often to medical attention or their burial. In this reference, Jesus is not exactly referring to a judgment, but rather the consequence or the byproduct of their sinful choices. He's not saying, I will cast you into a sick bed in the sense of because all of your immoral behavior, I'm gonna judge you in that sense, but rather it will be the result. You'll be sick as a result of the decisions you're making. This phrase, will cast, it's passive, it's not active. It literally means to let go of a thing without caring where it falls. It's as though Jesus is saying, I'm waiting for you to repent. I'm waiting for you to return. I love you with my whole heart. But if you don't, there will come a point where I will let go, where I will let go. He says, I will cast her into great tribulation. The result of their adultery is that in the end, once again, if they refuse to repent, they would no longer be considered his bride. And, would be subsequently not raptured with the church and will be left behind to experience, quote, great tribulation. Unless, of course, they repent of their deeds. Now, there are some debate as to whether or not this great tribulation is the one being referred to from chapters 4 to 22 in the book of Revelation or if there's some other type of great tribulation. What's interesting about the phrase great tribulation is that in the Greek, it means megas philipsis, which implies the greatest of all tribulation and position of rank. And you would be hard pressed to find any type of tribulation that would supersede the tribulation that's still yet to come for the wicked. He also says, I will kill her children with death. Now, that's a hard one. Because what is Jesus saying? No, no, he says, her children. I'll kill your children. 
Like Jesus is, is in this instance not taking on any type of parental responsibility. They're your children. They're not my children. He doesn't consider the offspring of this church that has fallen into these doctrines of idolatry and sexual immorality. He doesn't consider them to be part of his family. They're instead the bastard children of spiritual adultery who will no doubt experience death as a result of great tribulation. In the Greek, the phrase, I will kill. It possesses a dual meaning. Both are horrifying. (laughs) On one aspect, it can mean to allow to perish, or it can also mean to deprive of spiritual life. And don't the two go hand in hand. He says at the end, I will give to each one according to your works. Understand, the judgment of God is always measured according to your works. The judgment of God, according to scripture, it's proportional. While while hell is still the location, the destiny, for anyone seeking to atone for sin on their own, because that's impossible. It's impossible for a sinful person to provide a permanent atonement. The depths, though, of one's depravity will be factored in by a just God. And so if you ever say, how does Hitler get the same type of punishment I get? Well, he'll get a worse one, but you're still gonna get a punishment. That in regards to hell, there seems to be a hierarchy of judgment. Religious works, friend, only enable a person to climb the moral ladder of hell that never reaches its way into heaven. Now look at the byproduct of this judgment. He says, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. You know, you have the I am statements of Jesus and the gospel of John, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. Talks about being everlasting. I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I like that one. It's kind of scary, but I still like it. He knows, he sees He evaluates. And as a result of his judgment, this wicked church will be revealed to all the other churches for what she truly is, a whore, an adulterer. Now notice, once again, that not everyone within the church receives the same criticism or warning. Look at it again. He says, now to the rest, still speaking to the church, but subdividing it out. To the rest, as many as who do not have this doctrine, who do not know the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on no other burden, but hold fast till I come. A reference, I think, to the rapture of the church. Jesus here affirms that while the Roman Catholic Church may be institutionally corrupt and guilty of spiritual adultery, there will be a faithful remnant. And these people Jesus exhorts to hold fast to hold fast because he's coming. Beyond this, look at what else Jesus promises. He says, to he who overcomes, or the person who overcomes this culture of spiritual idolatry, immorality, adultery, and who keeps my works until the end. We'll get to that in a moment. Jesus promises what? He says, I'll give power over the nations and the morning star. 
And there's a lot of debate in regards to what Jesus means by the morning star. But I think in, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, we find the answer because Jesus refers to himself as being the morning star. So the reward is ultimately Jesus himself. And I like that. Now, let's bring it down to some application. <laughs> there's a lot there. It's a heavy word. But what is Jesus saying to us, to you and I individually, but to our church corporately? And I think the first lesson, it's a tough one as well. And that is the fact that not everyone who thinks they're a Christian is actually a Christian. Now, it's not to me to judge one way or the other, but this church does present a reality that there were people filling the pews who were doing all types of wonderful things in the name of Christ, who were in actuality self-deceivers. You know, in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is more concerned with your relationship with him than he is with what you do for him. This church did a ton of things for him. He doesn't care. Nevertheless, all I care about is knowing me. Depart, why? Because you didn't go to church enough? Nope. Because you didn't read your Bible enough? Nope. Because you didn't do enough? Nope. Depart, why? For one thing and one thing alone. I didn't know you. Like you and I, we never had a relationship. We're not connected in that sense. Do, do you know, while going to church and doing Christian works does foster the perception of being a Christian, these things don't in and of themselves make a person a Christian. Sitting in a pew doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. You can dress the part. You can look like the Christian. You can talk like the Christian. You can speak words that are Christianese. But that doesn't make you a Christian any more than dressing up like a police officer and walking around handing tickets makes you an officer of the law. As a matter of fact, that, that, if you're not a police officer and you do that, you're a creep. You're playing a hypocrite. Now, once again, it's not my place to judge the hearts of anyone. It's Jesus who searches the mind and the heart. But what Thyatira does present is the inescapable reality that it's possible to play a role, to look the part, but never actually know Jesus. You know, the second thing, while one, while one might think that the problem with this church was her spiritual adultery and her sexual immorality. I mean, those are the things that you could walk away from thinking, well, that's the problem, right? Sexual immorality, idolatry, that's it. It wasn't it. Like, understand that that wasn't the problem with this church. The problem with this church, the central problem with this church was her relationship with Jesus. Contrary to what most pastors say, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something that, that will initially be very controversial to you. 
because you've never heard someone from a pulpit say it. Here goes. You ready? Sin does not separate a believer from God. It doesn't. And I know that sounds weird, and I'll explain. But even Paul would attest in Romans 8, 39, that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, even our stupid choices. You see, what makes sinful behavior or spiritual compromise in the life of a believer so alarming is not that it somehow separates that person from God. Hey, the wages of sin have been satisfied by the blood of Christ, permanently reconciling me and you to God, providing us free and open access to the throne anytime we want it. Instead, what makes sin and spiritual compromise alarming in the life of a believer is not that it separates you from God, it's that it reveals a separation from God is presently taking place. It's why Jesus does what? He brings up their idolatry. It all begins with idolatry. You can't worship God in something else. Human behavior is always the effect of an inner cause. Like we see this in the real world. Adultery. Adultery always stems from either a problematic marital relationship or a spouse who's lost interest in the relationship. Like it's why no one commits adultery on the honeymoon. It takes some time. Understand, adultery, that's not your problem. Your problem is whatever caused that person to commit adultery. It's always symptomatic of something deeper, of something inner, of the heart. Think of it this way. Sinful behavior does not separate a believer from God any more than righteous works draws the believer any closer. Instead, sin in the life of a believer reveals that a dangerous separation from God is currently underway. For example, contrary to the conventional opinion, and you'll hear this, right? Looking at pornography, or living in sexual sin creates a distance in your relationship with God. Don't look at porn, because if you look at porn, guess what happens? Jesus becomes further and further away. Your relationship with God becomes tarnished. There's a separation that occurs. That's why sexual sin is so dangerous. But here's the deal. Is looking at porn doesn't separate you from God. Instead, these behaviors, sexual sin, they're evidence that a distance in your relationship with God is already present. If you're connected with Jesus and you're walking with Jesus, you don't have the desire for the things of the world. But when you're distancing yourself from that relationship with Jesus, you become susceptible to the temptations of other things. You know, the flip side is also true. Purity and holy living do not draw a person closer to God. Instead, they're evidence of the existence of an intimate relationship with Jesus. Yes, we're to be pure. Why? Because I'm walking with Jesus. Yes, I'm to be holy. Why? Because I'm doing all these things to be, no, it's because I'm, I'm walking with Jesus. It's all about a relationship with Jesus, which is important. 
You see, seeing sin as a symptom and not the problem is of vital importance for it has incredible implications for how you then seek to remedy the problem of sin. Like it's simply a truth that when sin is seen as my problem, it's only natural that religion or works becomes my solution. My actions are the problem, thus my actions are the solution. However, if sin is seen instead as a symptom of a separation from God, what's the solution? Me doing a bunch of things? No, the solution is simple. Return to Jesus and dive back into that relationship with him. Good works are the byproduct of being connected to a vine. Fruit. It's not something you have to work to produce. It's something that flows naturally out of the spirit of God ruling and reigning in your heart. Like the reason a relationship with Jesus and not the religion of works is the solution to every human problem is that you know what humanity needs more than anything? Saving from our problems. Like even in the way that we, 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 we phrase problems, the solution is presented. Like if your marriage needs saving, right? We, we, we will use that phrase. My, man, my marriage needs saving. Or my relationship with my son, it needs saving. You know what the solution? Because you need saving, you need a savior. His name is Jesus. Like if you're here this morning and you're like, you know what? I need to be saved from myself. I have these tendencies to do stupid things and I don't want to do them anymore. I need someone to save me from me. You need a savior. And his name is Jesus. If you have an addiction and you can't break free and you're stuck and you're like, I need someone to save me from this. Well, you need a savior whose name is Jesus. If this morning you're like, I'm carrying so much pain and so much hurt, so many scars from the past, I need to be saved from these things because they're ruining my life. You're right. You need a savior who can save. And his name is Jesus. Whatever problem you're currently facing, the solution, friend, is Jesus. As he's done, we'll close with this. In each of his letters, the way in which Jesus introduces himself to each church is significant. Why? Because whatever issue, whatever problem the church is facing, the solution is what? Understanding more about Jesus. In the case of Thyatira, he writes, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now this, this phrase, son of God, it's the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus is referred to as the son of God. In chapter one, he's referred to as the son of man, which, which connects us to uh, uh, his relatability. But what we need in our problem is not relatability. I need a savior. And Jesus is like, I am the son of God. Not only to remind them of who he's committing adultery on, but to remind them that he is more than able. He is more than powerful enough to be your savior no matter what you face. But then he also says what? He says, I have eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass. And, and while it's true, both of those things can speak to 
an essence of Jesus' judgment. I see it in a different way in context here. That I see his eyes burning with fire. What fire? I'm going to destroy you. No, I see the love of God. You know that fire in one's eyes? Well, you don't have to say anything. You can see how much they love you just by the way they look at you. That there's something penetrating, something radical, something real in his feet. Yes, it can, once again, brass and judgment. But it was the strongest metal in that day, which speaks to the fact that he's immovable. And I love this. Because what does this church need more than anything? They need to know that even when we act the fool, even when we run from him, even when we play the harlot, Jesus' passionate love for you and for me remains always steadfast. Finally, there's this contrast within the letter that you can't escape. Here was a church busy doing their works. And yet in the end of the letter, what does he exhort them to? He says, keep my works until the end. You have your works and I'll judge you. What you need is my works. Now, now this, this phrase, to keep my works, this word keep doesn't mean to obey. It means to guard. When Jesus is encouraging the faithful believers in this idolatrous church and what he's encouraging you and me this morning is that we need to protect, to hold, to guard his work. And what is that work? It's the work on the cross as a demonstration of God's love for you because you need a savior. Jesus' work for me, it matters way more than any of my works for him. And it's that knowledge of what he's done that keeps me where? In that relationship. And when I wonder, it's that knowledge that brings me back to where? To that relationship.